Galatians chapter 5, if you would, please. And we're going to be looking at this text. I want to tell you a, a story. Two elderly ladies, let's call them Mildred and Grace, were driving in a large car, and they were both tiny little ladies. One could, they could barely see over the dashboard, and they were coming to an intersection, and the stoplight was red, and the car went right through the stoplight. And as they were sitting there, Grace, who was in the passenger seat, she thought to herself, I think I'm losing it. That looked like that was red. And they, they continued on. They got a few more minutes down the road, another intersection. This time the light was red. They ran through the intersection again. Grace was sure it was red, but she thought, I've been, I've been having trouble seeing and hearing, and, and maybe I'm just confused. And she was getting nervous. They went to the third intersection. Light was red, and the car bolted right through it. She'd had enough. She was sure it was red that time. And she looked over, and she said, Mildred, you just ran a red light. You could have killed us. Mildred looked at her and said, am I driving? Okay. Thank you. I, my wife said no one would laugh. Okay, today's the message that I want to ask you a question. Do you ever wonder when you're trying to do this Christianity thing, if sometimes you just forget because it's going too quick, you're just trying to make it through the day? I mean, I could lament on 2020, and you'd all understand it. 2020 was horrible. I don't think 2021's much better. I don't know about you. But it's, the bruise is coming to the surface, isn't it? Much of the anger and anxiety that people are facing. We're living in a world right now where people know they're mad. They just don't know what they're mad at. I stopped at Starbucks this morning and saw a gentleman dressed up for church, obviously suit and tie, chewing out the barista because he had to wait five minutes for his coffee. And I thought, he's not mad at the coffee. He's mad at the world. And so then I was mad because I was going to have to wait for him, and I just got in the car and drove on, right? So we're all dealing with it our own way. Do you ever kind of ask the question, who's driving this thing? Who's really in charge? I know we're in church, so we're going to say Jesus is in charge of it. But I want to contest that a little bit this morning. He's not if you are. And if you aren't, he is. So really what I want to challenge us to think about this morning as we are refreshed, and I know I'm a guest preacher, so you don't have to listen to a word I say. I'm going to basically get in my car and head back to South Bend and spend some time with my folks this afternoon. And you can say, yeah, yeah, that was nice. Jordan had a friend here. But I really want to challenge you beyond that. I want you to think about something that I hope encourages your heart on a day that we celebrate Pentecost. So I want to ask you a core question. It's a question I've been leading the church that I get to minister in. I've been leading them for the past seven weeks through this. And when Jordan and I talked about what to talk about, this is what I want to talk about on the day we celebrate the Holy Spirit's coming. The Christian life is not about our management. It's about our openness. It's about your and my willingness to let the Holy Spirit do something in us. Spiritual formation does not happen because we try harder. Spiritual transformation happens because the Holy Spirit convicts us of the life of Jesus in such a way that it alters how we behave. It alters about what makes us cry, what makes us laugh, and what makes us angry. I want to show that to you by looking in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. You'll know this passage, I'm certain. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's kind of an ugly way to start a message, isn't it? It's like, don't be this. And what he's pointing out to us is Paul is telling us that there are behaviors that we perform that indicate where our soul is truly lodged, where our security is. But then he goes to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, 
peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul said the demonstration of our lives being transformed by the power of the gospel, that that transformation demonstrates itself in how you and I behave. And it's not about how hard we're trying. It's about whether we've been transformed. Now, people will tell you that if you would meet my wife, Heather, they would tell you that Heather was the best thing that ever happened to me because my relationship with Heather altered who I was, not just in what I wanted to become, but the way I act. My mom will tell me all the time that she spent 18 years trying to fix me. Two years with Heather, I was fixed because her spirit changed mine and made a difference in me. And that's not a romantic ideal. That's the truth is when I saw what a better person she was than me, I actually started doing what Heather did, and I found that there's really a better life to be lived than the selfish life I had centered myself on. The Holy Spirit brings to us that same impact. The day of Pentecost was wonderful because, as Jordan mentioned earlier, 3,000 people were saved. But why were they saved? Because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they were sinners. What did they cry out that day? What must we do to overcome what we've done? And then Peter said, that's really simple. Believe, repent, be baptized, and the gift of the Holy Spirit will be yours. And the Spirit begins to work on us. I have a very simple message. I'm going to do something that I know you've heard because the reason I told you I have listened over and over to your sermons is because I love this guy. And he teaches me something. And I know you have been taught. And I know you believe the foundation of what the gospel really means. So please pardon me if I rehearse one of our favorite hymns, the gospel. Let's begin. I want you to know that the Spirit's work in your life is received, it's not generated. I want to take the pressure off of all of us who are trying to be better. You won't be better if the Holy Spirit doesn't take control. You might be better for an hour or two. Each one of us can behave for a season. But I have found human nature is undefeated, isn't it? It is, it is going to keep poking up its selfish head over and over if we are not changed. So, every world religion tells you that if you live as you should, God will bless you. Christianity says you will only live the life you should when you have received and accepted the blessing of God's presence. So the gospel message is not what do we do for God, it's how do we live because of all that God has done for us. Look with me at Romans chapter 5, if you'll turn in your Bibles. We're going to be in Romans 5 for, here for just a moment. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you're going to see it broken up on the screen behind me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, I'm going to just point out the gospel truth. You don't justify yourself. Your best behavior is not going to be good enough. You don't have to drive. You just have to go along on the journey and follow. And when you follow, he does the justifying. He does it through his blood. It's nothing you and I give. There's nothing you and I bring. I believe I work because I've been blessed. I don't work to be blessed. He continues, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't manufacture peace. My relationship with God is good because my relationship with Christ is saved. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We don't earn our status. Jesus bought it, and he gives it to us by grace. You all know this, right? You can just nod your heads. If you're falling asleep, it'll look like you're paying attention, right? The last line he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the glory of the, of the Father, the glory that we live for. 
that moment in time. What I love about the Trinity, when you think about the Father, Son, and Spirit, you're going to notice something amazing. God spends all of his time in Scripture pointing at the Son and the Spirit. Jesus points all the time back to the Father and the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit points to the work of the Father through Jesus Christ himself. Do you notice that no one in the Trinity takes any glory for themselves? They're always reflecting the glory to one another. And that is when we know that the Spirit is transforming us, when it's not about our reputation, it's not about our legacy, it actually becomes how are we going to point out how good our God is. And that is a change of nature. Because the reason we turned to God is we needed him, we wanted him, and we had broken everything. Once we receive that, the, the Spirit does a fixing in us that allows you and I to live differently. So in verses 8 through 11, For God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him. Notice who's doing all the work. From the wrath of God, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Okay, let's stop the tape here for a second. What have we just realized? The Holy Spirit brings a hope to us because of the work of Christ. That's the gospel. Our hope then is not in what we've done or what we will do. It's not in the legacy we live. It's actually when you and I center ourselves daily on the gospel, or as a buddy of mine likes to say, when you preach the gospel to yourself every morning, you will live a different life than when you preach the message of what must I get done today. When the day is formatted around what I need it to be, I don't live a gospel-centered existence. I know me. I've been me for 56 years. If I don't preach the gospel to myself every morning, to bring glory to the Father, I will bring glory to myself. Am I the only person in the room who does that? So last week at the church that I preached in north of Joppa, Missouri, I asked a question. I said, I asked a question similar to that. Am I the only person who, when the pizza comes into the house and they unbox the pizza, am I the only person in the room that looks for the largest piece and says, if my wife grabs it, I'll be quiet, but if my sons grab it, we're going to have a word. And I asked that question, and I said, am I the only person? And a 12-year-old kid in the back of the room went, yep. And I lost the crowd. It was over. I think he lied. Okay, so when we center ourselves on the gospel hope, then I want you to read Romans 15, 13 with me. You'll see it on the screen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where do the gifts of the Spirit come from? Hope. They come from a hope that says Christ is enough. Now, I know you know this, so just excuse that first point. It's the theological foundation on which I'm going to prove to you and how I want to encourage you that you and I, no matter how long you've been a believer, you and I can be refreshed this morning and walk out of here with our tails wagging over one simple truth. Christ has given us everything we need to do everything he's asked, and it has a little to do with you. It has to do with whether or not we center ourselves in other words, who's driving? Who are we letting drive? The fruit of the Spirit grows in the most unusual places and circumstances. You know, we have plaques in our homes. Most of us can tell what the fruit of the Spirit are, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. We can, we can say all of them. We've, I remember as a kid, I think all the Bible memory verses I ever learned, I learned at church camp because the key to Bible learning in church camp was if you memorize the verse, your team went into lunch first. 
I'm not sure it was the greatest motivation, but I know every Bible verse because I was hungry. And I know the fruit of the Spirit, and when I listen to the fruit of the Spirit and I can quote the fruit of the Spirit, I don't reflect on it. When I do reflect on it, here's what I've learned. The fruit of the Spirit is not me. It's never been me. The fruit of the Spirit is evidence that God has done something in me I could not have done in myself. Pardon me for just a moment as I define for you the fruit of the Spirit so we don't take them for granted, okay? Let's begin love. My premise is this. I think love is the soil in which all the other fruits grow. When you and I don't understand the love of God for us, then we will not have a love for anything but ourselves. It is the soil in which all of these grow. Joy. Joy is a sense of gladness. We can't, we can't marry joy to happiness. I'm happiest when I'm full. I'm happiest when I'm well-rested. I'm happiest when the Cubs win. I'm even more happy when they beat the Cardinals. I live in Cardinal country. Pray for me. That's rough, right? And so in, in light of that, happiness is circumstantial. But the gift of joy is that moment when I walk into a cancer unit and I'm meeting with a lady who has just been told, this happened to me two weeks ago, she's just been told she has six weeks to live. And she looks at me and I teared up and she grabbed my hand and she said, you stop it. And I said, why? And she goes, I'm going to be with Jesus. Don't take that from me. Joy. Not happiness. She doesn't want to leave her grandkids. She doesn't want to leave her husband. She doesn't want to leave her friends. But when she told me, don't you take that from me, then we both dried up, as she would say, because I found joy in that moment when happiness could not exist. Peace. Shalom. You know you have peace when you're right with God, you're right with your neighbor, and you're right with yourself. In other words, when everything is out in the open, when everything is known, the Hebrew word for shalom means wholeness, that you are a complete person. You don't have anything to hide. It's, yeah, you have things you should hide, but you don't because you bring them to the Father, and you're right with God, and you're forgiven, and you're redeemed. And when we have peace, look at verse 7, as listed on the screen. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Where does peace come from? It doesn't come from your positive thinking. It doesn't come from measuring if everything's going to be okay. Peace can be found in that moment when it doesn't make sense. And when I walked into that hospital room and that lady looked me in the eyes and she told me to stop it, there was a peace in her I envied. It was a wholeness. It was a truth. Some of your Bibles will say forbearance if you have a newer translation, but the word's patience. And I want to read with you a moment in Jesus' life where he exhibited a patience that I cannot manufacture. In Luke 17, verses 3 through 6, it says, Watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. And if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Can I translate this in our vernacular today? Jesus says, if someone does you wrong at work, and you hear about it, and you walk to their desk, and you're like, dude, what's with that? And they're like, I'm sorry, I just got, I lost my temper, I didn't mean it. And then you come back, and they did it again, 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 and they're not even repentant, right? Because now they're just saying they're sorry because they're caught. And they do it seven times in a day. Jesus says, you must forgive them. And the disciples cry out, what? I mean, that's what it, like, you know, increase our faith. They're like, I can't do this. And Jesus is like, I know. Patience is loving someone else with forgiveness beyond what they've earned. Is that in you? It's not in me.
have I been able to forgive? Because God convicts me of my own sin, and he brings me to a point. He said, Mark, I did that for you. Can you do it for them? Kindness. Kindness is simply loving deeds, meeting needs. I know that's a tacky preacher's line, but you'll probably remember it. It's when you do something in a loving way because the person needs you to. But when I think of kindness, I think of my wife. She's not a perfect girl, but she's close. I saw what she did for our two boys over and over and over again without a second thought. And then when they got a little bit older and they got a little bit lippy, you know, they weren't really disrespectful. There were a couple of moments she'd ask them to do something, and she'd have to ask them the second time, which was funny because I never had to ask my boys a second time to do anything. Maybe it was fear. But I told them, I will not ask you again to do what you heard the first time. Now you get up and do it. And a couple of times I heard them, and they didn't think I was home, and mom would ask them to do something, and they were like, Mom, I'll get to it when I, you know, I'll get to it when I get to it. I'm like, well, you're going to get to it right now. And they would pop up and, and go to work, and I would just sit the boys down. The best sermons I ever gave were to my two sons. When I would list all the things I saw their mother do for them in their lifetime that they had no idea she ever did for them, the amount of nights she stayed up all night long and rocked them because they were uncomfortable or had a fever, and every time I give her birthday money or Christmas money, because I've learned a long time ago, after 34 years of marriage, she's not keeping anything I buy her, so I might as well just give her cash. You know what she does? She spends it on her boys. Now we got a granddaughter coming. Oh, my goodness. She's been buying clothes for 20 years. This is our first grandchild. She is selfless. She's kind. She gives. And when I look at her, I think she's just built differently. And she always says this to me. Mark, I grew up poor, and you know how many people in my church blessed my family so we didn't have to go on food stamps or I had a new dress or new shoes. And when I look at her and tears get in her eyes, I'm thinking her kindness comes from a memory of someone else's kindness. Do you know what the Holy Spirit will do for all of us? It'll remind us how many people have cared for us so that we will care for anybody. Look at 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The conviction of the gospel will bring something to us we never would find on our own. Faithfulness, I'll be quicker. Faithfulness is integrity. It's holding to the values that matter most, even when no one else does. Look at Ephesians 4. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on and put off. Wake up every day and center yourself. Preach to yourself the gospel and watch the Holy Spirit awaken you that you will then live out what you desire to live out. I've never met a person, not one, who's ever walked out of a church service on a Sunday morning and thought, wasted my time. I've, most of us walk out of here going, I need to do that. I need to become that. I need to feel that, right? What happens? Well, you get in a little traffic snafu out here in downtown Etna Green, you know, at the when all, everybody converges through town, right? And you're all going to the Quickie Mart for your Mountain Dew and, and somebody cuts you off and all of a sudden, everything we learned is gone. Why? Because when it's centered on me, I have justifiable reason to be Mark. When it's centered on the gospel, I am justified in Jesus. It changes everything. Gentleness, well, humility's the, the word we most use. Look at Philippians 2, you know this passage. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value each other above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. 
It's getting personal, isn't it? See, this is the fun part. I get to preach to you and leave. You don't know if I'll live this out or not. I will. Because I'm convicted over and over that the goodness of Christ will be seen before it's ever heard. That the message of the gospel will be demonstrated. Self-control. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. That, Galatians 5.17, right out of the passage on the fruit of the Spirit, is the core of what I want to say this morning, and then I want to illustrate it. But I want to illustrate it distinctly. Back to Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. And then in verse 11 it says, and we will rejoice in God. Listen to the life that the Holy Spirit will lead you in. There will be suffering that you will endure. You will find character. And character will hold you to hope. And all of this comes together so that God working through the Holy Spirit might transform us. The transformation of God's Spirit in every one of our lives is not how good we are or how hard we've tried. It actually comes to how deeply we surrender, how willingly we pour ourselves out. All of that theology done, okay? Let me tell you a story. You'll know the story. It makes this point, that the fruit of the Spirit is harvested in the working of the gospel of grace. This is what the Spirit's going to do. I, I want you to think with me or turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 8, to a passage of Scripture that I'm sure you're familiar with, but it's a controversial Scripture. Jordan and I have had some conversations online about this with some of our friends. Uh, when you open your physical Bible, maybe it's even on your app, you're going to notice that John 8, 1 through 11 is bracketed. All right, What that simply means is in the earliest transcripts of John's writing, this is not included. Now, what's interesting is they have found fragments of this in Luke's gospel, in some of the translations of Luke's gospel, and they found it in some of the translations of John, but not in all of the best ones. Now, you're thinking that it's not biblical. Be careful. Here's what I want you to hold on to. And if you hold on to this, I think I'll deliver at the end something that will make this worthwhile. This is a firsthand eyewitness account. Remember that. Matthew, or excuse me, John was probably not the one who was there to see this. But it was recorded, and it was added into John's letter. It was also added into Luke's letter. Somebody in the early church got the firsthand witness. The reason scholars believe that Luke probably was the one who told this story most was, if you remember, John was a firsthand account, Matthew and Mark were firsthand accounts, and Luke went around interviewing people like you and me who had been with Jesus. This story had been told to Luke at some point in time. This is what we know. All we know is there was a firsthand eyewitness account. Let's read the text, beginning in verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. That's a key detail. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, and the woman was standing there. Jesus straightened up 
and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. In verse 3 and verse 4, it says she's taken in adultery. I want to be uh, gentle with this, but I need to give you background to understand the impact of this moment where the grace of Christ is most demonstrated, and it's what will ground you and I to the opening of the Holy Spirit. This is the moment in time where each one of us will see ourselves in the story. It says she was taken in adultery. Old Testament law required a very strict testimony to any claim of guilt. So I'll explain it to you. To convict someone of adultery, it wasn't enough to say that you saw them come out of the bedroom. It wouldn't testify. It wouldn't count. If you said, I looked in the door and there they were lying in bed together, it would not count. The eyewitness testimony had to be two distinct people who actually saw them in the act. And it says here in verses 3 and 4 that they brought this woman from the moment that she was captured. They brought her to Jesus immediately. And it says in verses 3 and 4 that they had evidence and two eyewitness testimonies that were not lying that they had caught her in the act. She was caught in the act of adultery. This wasn't a false claim. This was a humiliated, broken, devastated woman that they dragged. I tend to believe that she probably was not dressed. She probably was brought the horror of that moment to trap Jesus. Here's why. They bring Jesus to him, or to her, place her there, and they say to Jesus, the law says that she should be stoned. If Jesus says don't stone her, he denies the law of God. If Jesus says stone her, then all of his talk about mercy and forgiveness and peace and grace, it's all wasted. They got Jesus in the perfect spot. They have him either way. No matter what he says, they're going to take the crowd away. They finally got him where they want him. But the most amazing thing is, notice the detail of the eyewitness account. She was kept standing, probably naked, unable to cover herself. Jesus, however, the moment she arrives, it says that he got down on his hands and knees and started drawing in the dirt. Now, if you're anything like me, and I'm a spaz when it comes to these things, I want to know what he was writing. Nobody tells us. That might be a detail you'd be interested in, because I know I am. What was he writing? Whatever he was writing, it had to be awesome. I, I don't know. Some people say he was writing the sins of the men who brought her. That would be awesome. I can't tell you that's true. All I know is he's writing something in the dirt, and he's not looking at her. Do you think for a moment... Jesus is protecting her shame? Do you think for a moment Jesus is being compassionate toward her in that moment when he knew she was guilty, but instead of looking on her guilt, he looked down and he began to draw in the dirt, and then he simply says something. He says, let the first person who's innocent fire the first stone. You see, the law not only required that there be two witnesses, the law of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and chapter 13, requires that only those two who witnessed that sin could throw the stones. The crowd, they had no business judging her. They had no business bringing judgment on her. It was only the two witnesses. And the Bible also tells you in Deuteronomy 7 and chapter 13 that anybody who had committed adultery could not throw a stone either. So maybe the two witnesses knew her for a different reason. And Jesus says, let the innocent throw the stones. And it says, beginning with the oldest, probably we could translate the wisest, the most experienced, Why does the gospel mean more to people who walk with it longer? Because there's a wisdom in knowing who we are and who Jesus is. And one by one, they began to drop their judgment at her feet. And Jesus, 
then says to her, where are your accusers? And she said, no one's left to accuse you? And she said, no one, sir. And then Jesus stands up, and he looks at her. And the one who could condemn her didn't. And those who wanted to couldn't. And in that moment, Jesus showed her grace. He didn't say to her, it's not a big deal. He said to her, go and sin no more. Grace with truth. And then the story fades away. And we think, Jesus, what an awesome dude. But let me ask you this. Where would we get the story? The woman was the only one who could have told the story. Notice the detail. There were only two of them left. Who would know that? She would. I don't think Jesus walked around bragging about this moment. That wasn't his nature. You see, when we say it's bracketed, it's maybe not a scripture. No, it's an eyewitness account. And who was it? I tend to believe, maybe I'm romanticizing this, I tend to believe that woman was one of the early disciples who was there on the day of Pentecost in that great celebration of the Holy Spirit. And she was reminded every day, I stood before my judge, I was guilty, and he said, go and sin no more, and I was forgiven. And do you know the beauty of this story? You want the Holy Spirit to make a difference in your life? You want the fruit of the Spirit to begin growing? You and I are the woman. We've all been there, haven't we? In the presence of the Almighty God, who knows what we've done, who knows it's not just accusation. It's truth. And what does he say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control? I do. I want it desperately. And I've been a failure to produce it on my own. But the good news of the gospel message this day is when we center ourselves on the truth, we give ourselves freedom and permission to fall at the feet of Jesus and to hear these words, neither will I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So the point of this is, the one who could, could condemn her didn't. Do you know this Jesus? Do you feel his spirit working on your heart daily to transform you into a person that forgives much more easily than you used to, who is gentle and kind, is practicing self-control? Do you find your appetites changing because of the grace you've received? The good news of the gospel is not behave and you can be a part of the church. The blessing of the gospel is when you open yourself up to the work of Jesus Christ, you will find your appetites changing. You will find your mind changing. You will find your heart softening. You will find yourself being reminded of the moment. There you were, naked and broken and ashamed, in front of the King of Kings, and listen to his words. Neither will I condemn you. Go, leave your life of sin. And what did she do? She followed him. One last thought to leave you before I pray. When Jesus confronts your sin, you don't feel condemnation. You feel forgiveness. You feel an invitation to follow. You're invited into something that's so much different than your best efforts. This is the moment that I ask for us to consider now when he c says we are freed. Will you live like it? Will you accept that today? Will you, will you choose? 
to think of how am I going to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in such a way that the one who I stood before becomes the reason I live, the power by which I live, and the hope on which I live, centering ourselves on the gospel. Let's pray. Father, work in us what we can't work in ourselves. The beauty of what you offer us is that your spirit comes into us, fills us, refreshes us, condemns our, our evil, our darkness, and yet brings grace and mercy. Jesus, I want to thank you because I know that the difference between the unsaved and the saved this morning is not who came to church. It's who came to you. It's who opened themselves up to you. And I pray for this body of believers here in Etna Green in, the, in this community. I, I pray that we would all live in such a way that even this day we would have the opportunity to reflect the goodness of our King into someone else's life because there's no gift you've ever given us meant to be kept. It's all meant to be given away. So our joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, all of these things that you've given us, Father, may we bless somebody with today in our homes, in our relationships. But most of all, would you fill our hearts in these next few moments of musical worship that we might express to you that we have stood before you broken, worthy of condemnation, and you and your mercy have given us life and peace. We ask for this. We ask for your spirit to move. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand